Ron and Gretchen read Mary's beautiful song called the Magnificat so capably a moment ago. Now let's learn about the context about why Mary sang that song. This story is called the Annunciation. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Then Mary said to Gabriel, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your purpose. Then the angel departed from her. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. So this Advent, we're preaching a sermon series called Christus Paradox, which is inspired by a hymn written by the Canadian prison chaplain, Sylvia Dunstan, who was in turn inspired by the 19th century Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, Christus Paradox, the paradoxical Jesus. Paradox, says Kierkegaard, is the attempt to discover something that thought cannot think. And therefore, paradox comes in handy when we try to understand the unique and unrepeatable life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so the Reverend Dunstan describes Jesus in this series of tensive polarities. Jesus is, she says, defeat and victory, peace and strife, death and life. Jesus is, she says, the one we both scorn and crave. The whole world craves a life like his. We know his immaculate innocence is exactly what the wrecked world needs. And yet we also know what happens when innocence like that comes into this world. He is the one we both scorn and crave. So think of Mother Mary for a a minute. Let's live into into her experience just a little bit this morning. There she is, just home from registering at whatever passed for William Sonoma in first century Palestine. (laughs) She's assembling her trousseau. She's tasting wedding cakes. She's planning her honeymoon at a resort on the Dead Sea. And then standing there in her bedroom beneath her Zac Efron poster in a pile of adorable stuffed animals is this luminous Vanny Envoy from the great blue beyond telling her not only that she's going to have a child, but she is going to have the most anticipated child in the history of her kinfolk. Mary pushes back against this improbable message. How can this be, she protests quite reasonably. How can this be since I have never, well, you know. How do you discuss these things with angels? In the dictionary, under mixed emotions, it says, see the Virgin Mary. He's the one we both scorn and crave. And even if you doubt the historicity of the Annunciation and the Nativity, 
you must admire Luke's narrative ingenuity because it is irresistible. The story is irresistible. And every time we try to retell the Christmas story, we tell it exactly Luke's way. This story of luminous innocence threatened by sinister malice. This infant is no match for Caesar's disruptive census and Herod's slashing sword. Tiny Tim is no match for the indifference of a parsimonious banker. In Bedford Falls, George Bailey is no match for the squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutchy, clutching, covetous Mr. Potter. A possibly demented senior citizen who likes to play Santa Claus at Macy's on 34th Street is no match for a legion of skeptics. Little Kevin McAllister is no match for the craven sticky bandits. The, the other night, a few of us went on one of these patented adult ed- education expeditions. We had dinner together, and then we saw this film called The Man Who Invented Christmas. The film is a guess at how Charles Dickens came up with these unforgettable, vivid characters like Bob Cratchit and Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge. We're always telling the story the same way of luminous innocence undone by sinister malice, or almost undone. Instinctively, we know how much we need Him. We crave His innocence. He turned water into wine and a little lad's lean lunch into a banquet for 5,000. He treated women as equals and not as objects or inferiors. He befriended the friendless and embraced the unembraceable. He made lame beggars walk and blind men see and welcomed every lost and lonely leopard into His loving embrace. We crave his innocence. Malcolm Muggeridge was a renowned British intellectual of the 20th, 20th century who all his life was attracted by the Christian religion but never managed till very late in life to make it his own. His sophisticated erudition prevented him from embracing this religion with its superstitions and its mysteries, its otherworldliness. And he was convinced that only secular humanism could save this wrecked world from itself. In 1958, he wrote in his diary, Christianity to me is like a hopeless love affair. It is infinitely dear and infinitely unattainable. I look at it constantly with sick longing. He says that he was enchanted by a religion he could never believe. And then he went to Calcutta and visited Mother Teresa's leprosarium there. And he changed his mind because it occurred to him that no Secular humanist has ever opened a leprosarium. That requires more than humanity. That requires the Christ-like life. Only the followers of Christ lift up the lowly and fill the hungry with good things and refuse to bow down and cringe before the powerful on their thrones. And so we know he is precisely what our wrecked world is waiting for. On the other hand, Isn't his coming into our lives something which, as Sylvia Dunstan puts it, we both scorn and crave, perhaps a little like Mother Mary herself? Because after all, what did Mary, this teenage mother, have to gain when Christ came into her life? Everything. What did she have to lose? Everything. Her reputation, her innocence, her youth, 
her control over her own existence. Because like every child, this child means to stake his claim onto her life. Everything she has and everything she is. What did Mary lose when Jesus came into her life? Everything. What did Mary gain when Jesus came into her life? Everything. And so it is with us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.